seated. Let's continue praising our Savior through the preaching of the gospel. You're blessed today? Every day? That's right, every day. We're blessed every day. If you have your Bibles, um, turn to John 15. We're going to continue in our journey through the Gospel of John. We've been in John for the last five years, I think. But that's okay, right? Dr. John MacArthur took 40 years to go through the New Testament with his congregation. And that's preaching every week. I only preach usually once a month. But if you read through the Bible, what we read and see in various titles that the biblical writers call believers, here's here's just a few of them. As you read through the Bible, you'll, you'll come across these. We're called the beloved of God, right? We're called the children of God. We're called saints. We're called children of the promise. We're called the righteous. We're called godly. We're called lights in the world. We're called the elect. We're called living stones. And we could go on and on. There's many terms that the Bible calls the saints. But in our text tonight, something very unusual. Jesus calls us friend. No longer a slave. He says, I call you friend. The God of the universe not only loves you, he chose you, but he calls you friend. Turn with me to John chapter 15. Let's look at verses 12 through 16. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you that... You call us friend. That you love us, you chose us, and you call us friend. Help us, the Father, to take that seriously. That we're your friend in Christ's name. Amen. William Morris in Parade Magazine. William Morris was a, uh, he was a writer. And he wrote this in Parade Magazine. One example of friendship remains with me as vividly as the moment I, heard fir- I first heard of it as a boy. In the first season with the Brooklyn Dodgers, Jackie Robinson, the first black man to play Major League Baseball, faced venom nearly everywhere he traveled. Fastballs at his head, spikings on the bases, brutal uh, epithets um, from opposing dugout and from the crowds. During the one game in Boston, the taunts and the racial slurs seemed to reach a peak. In the midst of this, another Dodger, a southern white named Pee Wee Reese, called timeout. He walked from his position at shortstop towards Robinson at second base, put his arm around Robinson's shoulder, and stood there with him for what seemed like a long time. 
The gesture spoke more eloquently than the words, this man is my friend. And Jesus is that kind of friend, and if I may add, eternally more to every believer. He loves us, he chose us, and he calls us friend. And the proposition, I always give a proposition, the main idea of the text, of this text is this. Because of the love and friendship Christ has for us, we are to do likewise. Three points I'm going to bring out in this text. We are loved by Christ, we are called friends of Christ, and we are chosen by Christ. Let's look at the first point. We are loved by Christ. Verses 12 and 13 again. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. And look at me at 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. So here's what I'm going to ask you. What is love? If you ask five people, guess what? You'll get five different answers. But what kind of love is Jesus speaking about when he says, Love one another as I have loved you. Love in our present text that we're studying today is used four times. As you study the Bible, there are certain words that appear and reappear many times. Love is one of those words. They appear and reappear. I I read that in John's Gospel, love appears 34 times. And if you add the forms loved and loves... It jumps to 57 times. The epistle of 1 John, if you ever read the epistle of 1 John, contains the word love, guess how many times? 44 times in 5 verses. No wonder John is called the apostle of what? Of love. John, if you never heard it, now you'll hear it. You heard it first here at Sonship. John is called the apostle of love. And if you read his writings... He, that he speaks about love throughout his epistles and the gospel. And because the word love is used in the Bible so many times, you and I need to pay special attention to what God is trying to tell us. It, listen, you only need God to say something once. And if he says it once, we need to listen. But when he says, when he says something numerous times, we really need to listen. Now, the English language, we, we need to know how this word is used, too. And the English language is very limited. For example, in English, we have one word for love. But in Koine Greek, anybody know what Koine Greek is? Koine Greek is what the New Testament was written in, the language of the original New Testaments. There are a couple of words for love. As a matter of fact, there are a few words in classical Greek. That seem to be common. Only two of those words in classical Greek. We're going to be looking at four. But only two of those words in classical Greek. Are, are found in the New Testament. And I'll define the first two. That are not found in the New Testament. But I'm aware. Or I'm sure. That we are aware of it. And we can relate to them. Um, all the definitions I give are from various resources. I'm going to do a little teaching now. And then I'll put on my preaching shoes. And maybe preach a little. But I'm going to do some teaching now. The first one is, and, 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 many, and many of you who have been a Christian for a while heard these words before. Many, uh, the first one is, is eros. Say that with me. 
Eros, okay, I commission you Greek scholars, you're all Greek scholars now. But anyway, it denotes the love between man and woman that embraces longing, craving, and desire, a physical or sensual love. Eros was the Greek god of love, the son of Aphrodite, the goddess of love and beauty. This kind of love is erotic love. Eros is love of passion. An overmastering passion that seizes and absorbs itself into the mind. It's a love that is an emotional involvement based on body chemistry. The basic idea of this love, hear me, is self-satisfaction. It was originally defined as demonic love, which was identified with pagan orgies and temple prostitution. As a matter of fact, both Plato and Aristotle tried to clean up the word eros by removing the negative connotations of the demonic. However, it still had the idea of sensual expression and sensual affection, but without the negative connotations of the demonic. So Aristotle and Plato tried to clean it up a little. I don't know if they did a good job with it, but they tried to clean it up. Now through eros... Though Eris is directed towards one another, it actually has self in mind. For example, I love you because you make me happy. The foundation of this type of love is some characteristic in the other person which pleases you. In other words, if you find something in me that pleases you, you're going to love me. If the characteristic would cease to exist... The reason for the love would be gone. The result being, I don't love you anymore. Eros looks for what it can receive. If it does give, it gives in order to receive. If it fails to get what it wants or expects, bitterness and resentment could develop. The philosophy of Eros is that being loved depends on being attractive in some way to another person. And because of this dependency, Eris would be considered a conditional type of love. And I think the only way that we can consider this type of love acceptable is the passionate romance between a husband and a wife. And that can be selfish also if we're not careful. Let's talk about the usage in the New Testament. Eris is not used in the New Testament. Eris is not used in the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek New Testament. For those of you who don't know, there were Hebrew Greeks or Hebrews influenced by Greek and didn't understand the Hebrew language. So Septuagint was written by, the legend tells us, 50 Jewish scholars that translated the Hebrew text into the Greek text. And that's how they got to Septuagint. Or I should say 70 scholars. 70 scholars. That's what Septuagint means. Anyway, so it's not found in, in, in the New Testament, it's not found in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. I'm going to paraphrase what Kittle's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament says. That's, by, by the way, that's one of the most used dictionaries of, of scholars, Kittle's Theological Dictionary. It says this In a world perishing through eros and vainly trying to make eros the norm, we see that today too. The church, on the other hand, being itself totally dependent on the merciful love of God, practices a love that does not desire, but gives. In other words, Christians do not practice that kind of selfish love. We practice selfless 
love, which we will talk about in a few minutes. Okay, so that's the first word. Second word is storge. Say that with me, storge. That's another word. That's also not found in the New Testament, except in a negative form. This love has its basis in one's own nature. Storge is a natural affection or a natural obligation. It is a natural movement of the soul for a husband, a wife, a child, or even a dog. It is a quiet, abiding feeling within a man that rests on something close to him and that he feels good about. The enhanced uh, strong lexicon, that's a Greek dictionary, defines storge as cherishing one's kindred, especially parents or children. The mutual love of parents and children and wives and husbands. Loving affection, prone to love, loving tenderly, chiefly to the reciprocal tenderness of parents and children. So this type of love, storge, is a natural affection. It's, it's like a, a sense of belonging to family. Now let me move to the biblical types of love in the New Testament. <clears throat> and you've heard of this. Phileo, say that with me, phileo. Okay. We all heard of the, of the city of Philadelphia, right? That's the city of brotherly love. It means love for a friend or a brother. Phileo is the most general word used for love or affection. It mainly represents the attraction of people to one another, both inside and outside the family, where concern, care, hospitality, and connections of faith are important. Using it in compounds in the New Testament, it can also show the love of inanimate objects, like uh, phileo sophia, the love of knowledge. That's what sophia means, wisdom or knowledge. We see that in Colossians 2.8. Phileo is a companionable love. It speaks of affection, fondness, or liking. Kenneth, Kenneth Weiss, the Greek scholar, says, it's a love that is called out of one's heart as a response to the pleasure one takes in a person or object. So phileo is a love that responds to kindness, appreciation, or love. It involves giving as well as receiving. But when it is greatly strained, it can collapse in a crisis. So phileo is a good type of love, and we, we need to practice that. We need to practice that loving affection. Matter of fact, for some reason, John in the New Testament uses those, the word we're going to talk about, agape, the highest form of love, and phileo interchangeably. So... You can have phileo without having agape love, which we'll talk about. But you can't have agape love without having phileo. Okay? So, phileo is a higher love than eros because it is our happiness rather than my happiness. See, eros says me, me. Phileo says our, all of us. It is used a number of times in its noun and verb forms in the New Testament. Although this kind of love is nice and required, we see that in 2 Peter 1.7, it is not the highest form of love. And this brings us to the last of the four commonly used words in love in classical Greek, actually in, in coin Greek, which is agape or agapao. Say agape. 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 So you learned four Greek words today. Agape, eros, storge, and phileo. Now, if you've been a Christian any length of time, you had to hear the word agape, agape love. Every Christian knows the word agape, but does every Christian understand and practice agape love perfectly? 
Agape or agapao in the New Testament is a word used distinctly to describe God's love for man and man's love for man in the imitation of God's love. Agape is the word used in Romans 12.9 to describe the love of believers must have for each other and for their enemies. Agape is called out of one's heart by the preciousness of the object loved. It is a love of esteem, of evaluation. It is the idea of prizing. It is the noblest word for love in the Greek language. Agape is not ignited by merit or worth of its objects, but it's or, it originates in its own God-given nature. God is love. It delights in giving. This love keeps on loving even when the loved one is unresponsive, unkind, unlovable, and unworthy. It's unconditional love. Agape desires only the good of the loved one. Unlike, unlike Eros, agape love is consuming passion for the well-being of others. Eros has a consuming, Paris, uh, uh, consuming passion for me. Agape has a consuming passion for you. There are only a few known occurrences of this word of love, agape, outside the Bible. In other words, this love, and hear me, was not used very often in extra-biblical writings. It was used approximately 320 times in the New Testament. It's a lot. You know why? It's divine love. It's a love that no human possesses. It's a love... That defines God's love. The only way a human can exercise this love is if God resides in that person. In other words, a person must be born again. A person must be regenerated by God's Holy Spirit to have this kind of love. Turn with me to Romans 5. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our sufferings produce perseverance, or, or, or endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love, God's agape love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. That's fantastic. In other words, when we come to faith in Christ, we were baptized in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit filled our hearts with divine agape love. This is the kind of love Jesus is speaking about here. The agape love is best described in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 8. Now, you, you, know, you always hear this verse at weddings. Sometimes it makes me nauseous. Because do they really know what they're saying? They're saying love is kind, love is this, love is that. And the next thing you know, they're into divorce court. Do they really know what this is about? Let's read it. Love is patient and kind. 
Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable, irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Now, whoever had this love, only Christ fulfilled this perfectly. But if you're a Christian, it's in your heart. And we progressively get better at this, don't we? Love is wholehearted, without strings attached, sacrificial, divine love. So to sum it up, storge, affectionate love, phileo, friendship love, eros, romantic, passionate, erotic love, and agape, divine love. But it's the agape divine love we are speaking about here today in our text. This is the way God, through Christ, loves us. And this is the kind of love, hear me, this is the kind of love he calls believers to love each other with. We are to love each other. I remember one time we had a Bible study. I was just sharing with my wife and we had this wonderful Bible study and talking about forgiveness. And, I, and no sooner than I said amen, I looked into my kitchen, I saw two women going at it. I said, did they not, I'll say to myself, did they not hear the word of God today? You know, we're fickled, sheep are fickled. Make no mistake about it, but we're growing and learning. When we read verses 1 through 11 in the Gospel of John chapter 15, which I preached on the last time, we read about relationship between vine and the branches. Remember that? About the relationship between Christ and believers. Our text today, verses 12 to 7, or verses 12 to 16 really, we read about the relationship of branch to branch, believer to believer. And the next time I preach, verses 18 to 27, we're going to read about our relationship, Christ and the believer's relationship to the world. But today we're going to focus on our relationship between believer and believer. We are to love each other with the love Christ has for us. Now Jesus doesn't give us an option, does he? Does he? Does he give us an option? Say, love one another if you feel like it? No, he, he does not give us an option. This is a command here. This is the second time Jesus gave the commandment to love one another. The first one was back in chapter 13. And only those who abide in Christ can actually love divinely as Jesus loved. John chapter 15 verse 10 Jesus said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. As I said the last time, his love for us is not a result of our obedience to him. Rather, our obedience is a result of our love for him. And the only reason why we love him is because why? He first loved us. And because he loves us, and we now abide in Christ... We abide in his love. He tells us, love each other with the fervent love that I have for you. See, Jesus Christ has a fervent love for us. And he says, you do the same now for your brothers and sisters. And Paul expressed the same principle to the church in Rome. Listen to Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. He says... Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. 
For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So he starts off by saying, owe no one anything. You know why? Christians do have one debt. We have one debt. And that's to love one another. The songwriter in the song Love One Another by the contemporary Christian group Glad says in one of the verses, When all your debts have been paid, one is destined to remain. What you owe above all else is to love your neighbor as yourself. If we fail to love habitually, if we refuse to love and claim to be a Christian, the Apostle John has a message for us in his first epistle. 1 John chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. That's pretty serious words that the Apostle, Paul is tell, uh, Apostle John is telling us. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. How do you know if you're a genuine born-again Christian? If you love, not with Eros' love, not only with Storge or Phileo love, but with genuine, divine, agape love. The standard of our love for each other is the way Jesus Christ loves us. Ephesians 5, verses 1 to 2. Paul tells this to the Ephesian church. He says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ has loved us, and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul's saying, Love your brother and sister the way Christ loved us. Now this doesn't mean we are going to love perfectly in this life and never fail at this, but it does mean this. We are going, it means we will love sacrificially and when we fail, there will be repentance. And I tell you what, you will grow in that love. You will grow in that agape love, that unconditional divine love that God has given you. You're going to grow in that. There's no way you will stay the same. Back in our text, it's hours before Jesus is going to be crucified and will demonstrate the supreme act of love by dying for his friends. And that's why he could say in verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Listen, Jesus didn't die for himself. He died for sinners who were not looking for salvation. Sinners who were not seeking after God. Romans 5, verses 6 to 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for the righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, he laid down his life for us. Are we to lay down our lives for each other? Can you answer me that? Are we to lay down our lives for each other? Ultimately, dying for someone is a supreme act of love. Are we to do the same for each other? I'll let John answer that. Not John Verdi. I'll let John the Apostle answer that. 
1 John 3.16 By this we know that he laid down his life for us. By this, I'm sorry, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Listen to the next line. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. In Christian Leader Magazine, Ernest Gordon tells a story in Miracle on the River Kwai about Scottish soldiers forced by their Japanese captors to labor on a jungle railroad. Under the strain of captivity, they degenerated to barbarous behavior. But one afternoon, something happened. A shovel was missing. The officer in charge became enraged. He demanded that the missing shovel be produced or else. When nobody in the squadron budged, the officer got his gun and threatened to kill them all on the, on the spot. It was, obvious he, it was obvious the officer meant what he said. Then finally, one man stepped forward. The officer put away his gun, picked up a shovel, and beat the man to death. When it was over, the survivors picked up the bloody corpse and carried it with them to the, sec- to the second tool check. This time, no shovel was missing. Indeed, there had been a miscount at the first checkpoint. The word spread like wildfire through the whole camp. An innocent man had been willing to die to save others. The innocent had a profound effect. The men began to treat each other like brothers. When the victorious allies swept in, the survivors' human skeletons lined up in front of their captors. And instead of attacking their captors, insisted no more hatred, no more killing. Now what we need is forgiveness. Sacrificial love has a transforming power. That's a great story. That's a great story. This man didn't know where the shovel was, but he was willing to risk his lives for his other, you know, friends. And we should do the same. We should be, have that kind of heart. Jesus, from a pure motive of love, dies a sacrificial death on our behalf. His sacrificial love has transformed you and me, and now we ought to have the we do have the power to do the same for each other. We are loved by Christ. We are called friends of Christ. The second point, verses 14 and 15. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. And as I said before, the greatest act of love is to lay down one's life for a friend. Jesus laid his life down for his friends. So who are Jesus' friends? Jesus tells us in verse 14 just that. He says, the one who does what he commands. That's who Jesus' friends are. So do we earn Christ's friendship? Is this a conditional statement? No. Dr. D.A. Carson says, the obedience is not what makes them friends. It is what characterizes his friends. You see, because Jesus is our friend, we delight in obeying him. Obedience is now part of our character. Friends, phylos, little Greeks, little Kittles theological dictionary of the New Testament describes this word as to treat someone as one's own people. You and I, a Christ's own people. He says, I no longer call you slaves. He no longer calls us slaves or servants. 
The term slave in Jew- Jewish antiquity did not have many of the negative connotations as it does today. Many of the Old Testament saints were termed slaves. And the New Testament saints called themselves slaves. So we're still slaves of Christ. Even though Jesus said, I don't call you slaves anymore, we're still slaves of Christ. We still obey him. But we are slaves willingly because we love our master and are willing to obey him. And Jesus, our master, he's a kind master, isn't he? He's a loving master. He's a concerned master. But this doesn't fully convey our relationship with Christ. He now gives the disciples, and an extension to all believers, a title even higher than being called a disciple. He calls you and me friends. I had to say, wow. Jesus, the God of the universe, is calling me a friend. And as friends, we are Christ's own people. Now this doesn't mean, once again, we cease to call him Lord, because he calls us friends. He's still our Lord, he's still our master, we are still slaves and servants of Christ. Dr. Sproul says it this way, he didn't tell the disciples that he was about to cease being their Lord, rather he was saying, I have related to you as a master relates to his students. You have been my disciples, you have been enrolled in my school, I have been your professor, you have been my subordinates. But today is graduation day, and from now on, I want you to look at me as your friends. Friends, what do friends do? They confide in each other, don't they? If we were just servants of Christ, we would just be told what to do. But as friends of God, we are given more information, aren't we? That's right. If the genuine Christians, Jesus, as genuine Christians, Jesus shares personal information with us. Not with the world, with his people. Do you know what the Bible says? It says we have the mind of who? We have the mind of Christ. Not so with the unbeliever. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. He's talking about the natural person, the unbeliever. Does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. He can't. He can't understand them. The spiritual person judges all things, but he but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? Ah, but we have the mind of Christ. I have a few very close friends that I've had for many years. And over the years they have gained my trust. Only these very close friends I trust will I disclose personal things that are going on in my life. You and I are privileged to know the thoughts of our Lord by way of the Spirit and the Word of God. See, as a Christian, you take the Bible and you read it. And the Spirit of God gives you information that the world cannot understand. The world can pick up the Bible, right? The world can look at the Bible and read it. I know many unbelievers that know the word of God better than some Christians. But God doesn't give them illumination. They don't understand it. They could read it, but they don't have the illumination of the Spirit to help them understand it in their hearts. You and I have the mind of Christ because we're friends of Christ. You and I are privileged to know the thoughts of our Lord by way of the Spirit and the Word. Dr. Bruce Milne says, 
The proof of this divine friendship is not only the cross on which he died, but the truth which he has revealed. I have called you friends for everything that I have learned from my Father, I have made known to you. Doesn't mean we know everything, but we're growing in the knowledge of Christ. What does Peter say? He says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as one of Christ's own people, everything that Jesus has heard from the Father, he shares with us as his friends. I mean, that deserves an amen. That is the word of God, that he's sharing his very thoughts with you. We are privileged people, make no mistake about that. Abraham in the Old Testament was a privileged man. He was called a friend of God. James 2.23, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called what? A friend of God. And the, and the writer of Second Chronicles in Isaiah calls Abraham God's friend. Moses also indirectly was called a friend of God. Exodus 33.11, the first part of it. It says, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Are you speaking to God as a friend? Are you? Let that transform your life. And I think, I think, this is my opinion, this is not gospel truth. I think Enoch and Noah were friends of God. Even though the Bible doesn't explicitly say friends of God, Genesis tells us that they both walked with God. To walk with God is to have a special, intimate, ongoing relationship. By the way, we're not walking with God anymore. God is walking through us now. We, what an honor and a privilege to be called a friend of God. When Bishop Belveridge was dying... One of his closest friends said to him, Bishop Belveridge, do you know me? The bishop asked, who are you? And when the name was mentioned, he said, no. They said to him, don't you know your wife? He said, what is her name? He again asked. His wife came forward and said, I am your wife. Do you not know me? No. I did not know I had a wife. The old man's mental machinery was breaking down. Then one knelt by him and whispered in his ear, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? At that, the dying man's face lighted up and he answered, Yes, I have known him for the last 40 years and I could never forget him. The writer goes on to say, Ah, yes, when memory cords are all snapping and the mind wanders with, in a maze, still the name of this friend, the name of Jesus, will sound with sweet meaning in the believer's ear. The cord of memory that binds to Christ will still hold, and along it will flash messages of cheer and strength, which shall establish your soul in the last darkness. What a fantastic story. I heard that story, it brought tears to my eyes. He didn't remember his wife and his friends, but he remembered Jesus. On that final day, will you know him? When you're on your dying bed, will you say, I don't know anybody else, but I know Jesus. Jesus is my friend forever. If you're born again, he's your friend forever. The God of the universe calls you his friend. The next time you are praying, remember, God calls you his friend. To believe that, to truly believe that in your heart will change your life forever. You'll never be the same. If you understand that he is your friend, we're not just servants anymore. 
with friends to understand that and to really believe that will change your life forever. He chose you to be your friend. We are loved by Christ, the first point. We are called friends of Christ, the second point. And the third point and final point, we are chosen by Christ. Let's look at verse 16. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. Now, it was perfect, uh, perfectly normal and customary for a disciple or the students to attach themselves to a particular rabbi or teacher back in antiquity in Israel's day. They chose the rabbi or the teacher. And Jesus breaks that custom here. He breaks that pattern, doesn't he? Jesus always loves to break these patterns, these traditions. And the reason why he broke it was because, I would think, lest his disciples be puffed up with pride because of what Jesus had told them and the privilege they now enjoy. Jesus corrects their thinking now. I chose you. You didn't choose me. Dr. Carson says this. In the final analysis... His followers are privy to such revelations, not because they are wiser or better or consequently made the right choices, but because Christ chose them. Christ chose us. He chose us. The fact that Jesus chose them, and by extension to all believers, to salvation apart from anything they did, crushes every last ounce of pride out of them and us. He chose us. When we get to heaven... You're not going to say, well, Jesus, when somebody gave me the gospel, you know, I, I, I decided in my heart to choose you. No, he chose us. Changed your heart, gave you a new heart, and you responded in faith and repentance. It really, the doctrine of election, really, really, and I, the first person I heard say it this way was Pastor Brian. I, I could quote my own pastor for a change. But the first person I ever heard say that was, and he said, it, it, it crushes the last ounce of pride out of you. There's no more pride. I didn't even have a will to look up and say, God saved me. It was until God gave me a new heart, changed my heart, as Ezekiel and Jeremiah say, put a spirit within me, that now I responded in faith and in repentance. He did it. To think anything less is pride. Jesus chose them for salvation, for discipleship, and for friends. John Calvin said, He declares still more clearly that it must not be ascribed to their own merit, but to His grace, that they have arrived at so great an honor. The Christian is saved by God's choice. The Christian is a disciple by God's choice. The Christian is a friend of Christ by God's choice. Now, I'm not saying there's no responsibility on the believer. Of course there is, which I'm not going to get into, but there's always responsibility. Human responsibility and God's sovereignty always run parallel in the Bible. They'll never meet, but the Bible teaches both of them. And whether we understand it or not, we can't understand it. We believe it because it's spoken. In other words, as Dr. Bruce Milne says, he says, their standing in relationship with him is a matter of grace. Jesus chose us for salvation. And also, here's another thing, he also appointed us to bear fruit, fruit that will last. We are a chosen people, 
Boyoso appointed to bear fruit. And appointed means to assign someone to a particular task, function, or role. Christ chose every believer, his disciples and extension to every believer, and appoints us to bearing or to bear lasting fruit. He sets them apart for service. And I believe in this context, bearing lasting fruit is conversions. Jesus did not set us apart to stand idly by while people are going to hell. Brother Pat Mack, our elder, just made a great point here. You know, it doesn't come natural to us, for most of us, to share Christ. Some people have the gift of evangelism, they could go to anybody. But for the most part, the Christian doesn't have this natural want, desire to go and share Christ with everybody. But he appointed us to bear fruit. Jesus doesn't want us to stand by idly. We are commanded to go and make disciples of all nations, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And when people respond to the gospel message that we are proclaiming to them, and come to a saving faith in Christ, they're the fruit that lasts. Dr. Carson says, again, he says, one purpose of election then is that the disciples who have been so blessed with revelation and understanding should win others to faith, fruit that will last. When we abide in the vine, as I preached the last time, Jesus Christ, he's the vine, we, the branches, begin to bear fruit. And some of that luscious fruit is converts to Christ. And this fruit of ours remains. It lasts. In John 4, Jesus, if you remember, uh, just finishing ministering to the Samaritan woman, uh, when his disciples came back from the city from buying food, he was sitting there, and in the meantime, the Samaritan woman went home and told the people about her experience with Christ. And now the whole town is walking through the fields, and Jesus is talking to his disciples, and the whole town is coming through the fields, and they're dressed in white. And Jesus tells his disciples as he sees them with their white clothing coming through the fields towards them, uh, starting at the second half of verse 35, we're going to go to verse 36 of chapter 4, he says this, he says, do not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest, look I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest, already the one who reaps, and listen to this, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, that's lasting fruit. So that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. You see, when you share Christ with someone and they trust Christ for salvation, they last for eternity. They are your lasting fruit. And and do you know what it means? Do you know what the means of your fruitfulness is? It's your prayers. That's the means of your fruitfulness for which you and I have been chosen. Prayer. Let's read verse. Thir- oh, I'm sorry. Let's read verse 16 again. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give it to you. So God delights in the prayers of His saints, and there is a clear link between prayer and evangelism. We bear fruit in connection. With answered prayer. Luke 10, 2. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, what? Pray. Pray earnestly, 
to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And then 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. First of all, then, I urge you, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high position, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of our God, who desires all people to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth. We ought to pray for souls. Don't think you're just going to go out and share Christ. You pray before you go out and share Christ. It's been said that the great evangelist D.L. Moody prayed for a hundred of his friends and 96 of them gave their lives to Jesus. And the remaining four of them accepted the Lord at his funeral. There is a clear link between evangelism and our prayers. That's the means that God uses for evangelism, saving souls, is our prayers. You can say, but John, you just said he choked. Yes, he did. But we're the means. He uses us. He uses our prayers. He uses our evangelism to go out and share Christ, that people could come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Are we praying for our non-believing friends? Are you praying regularly for them? Hey, listen, I could only tell you what happened to me with my father. I prayed for almost 30 years, and at the end of his life, he finally came to a genuine saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. My wife and I experienced that. We have no doubt in our minds that he came to faith in Christ. But I prayed almost 30 years. Pray. Don't give up. Pray. Don't give up. It might take a long time, but we need to believe that Jesus will touch them and we should never give up praying for them. Let me conclude with this. You and I... With all humanity have sinned against the holy and righteous God. We deserve nothing. And you know this. But God's eternal wrath forever. I mean. If you have realized the depth and seriousness of your sin. And the purity and holiness. And the perfect righteousness of God. You wouldn't hesitate for one split second. To admit that you deserve judgment. But instead. God the Father. For whatever reason sent his son to redeem us from the curse, his eternal wrath and hell. He saved us purely by his grace. Please don't think about this, or please think about this, I should say. The God of the universe loves you, and not only that, but calls you his friend by choice. Think about that again and again and again. Do you know him? Do you love him? If you don't and you want your sins forgiven, here's what you do. You admit your sins and your depravity before God and believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. Believe that He died for you in your place and ask Him from your heart to make His home in your heart. Admit your need of the Savior. And when you do that, you will have a friend and His name is Jesus. And I'll close with this scripture which defines our Savior. Proverbs 18.24 A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. You see, Jesus is more loyal than even your own loved family members.